and good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening. On this Christmas Eve 2022, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn where we boldly go where very few people have ventured to go before. But tonight, my, my sole guest, and we may be joined by some surprises in the third hour, or maybe not, but my sole guest tonight is my friend and colleague. I've known him, gosh, forever and ever and ever. Um, his name is Robert Morningstar, and you have heard him on the show countless times covering an extraordinary range of subjects and material and research and background and individual proclivities for curiosity that he exhibits all over the place. So I thought tonight, given that this is the kind of end of the year, and we have just undergone an extraordinary, um, really a Christmas present, which we will be reiterating tomorrow night on Christmas night, given that everybody has family and friends and parties and all that stuff. Uh, for those of you who are hanging out close to the fireplace or close to the radio, tomorrow night we're going to uh, play the program from last Sunday night again, which is the basic encapsulation of this extraordinary data from the Artemis mission, the recent NASA unmanned test mission of the new Artemis program, follow-on to the Apollo program, uh, which ended just a few days ago with the successful return of the unmanned Artemis Orion spacecraft to the Pacific Ocean, just kind of off Baja. Uh, they were going to try to land off uh, San Diego, uh, but the weather precluded them from doing that, so they had to cut the uh, entry slightly short and landed off Baja. And the spacecraft is now literally en route on a big flatbed covered by many tarps from San Diego to Cape Canaveral, where it will arrive at the kind of uh, end of next week, I think, or maybe middle of the week. And then we'll start downloading all kinds of data recorded on board, including, I'm hoping, the incredible 4K imagery taken of the moon as the Orion spacecraft in its 26-day unmanned test flight looped around the moon. Um, okay, so that's kind of background. Well, while all this was going on, um, something else occurred to NASA in space. I believe it was Thursday. The uh, Russians were supposed to do a uh, spacewalk, uh, fixing up more gear as part of the Russian section of the International Space Station. And just before they all were suited up, they were in the airlock, they were going through the final checks, and somebody, either the astronauts in, in the space station, looked at a screen, or the folks in Houston looked at a screen, and they noticed what you see in item number one in my section tonight of Radio with Pictures, uh, which was a snowstorm taking place around the Soyuz ferry vehicle, which is always docked to the space station to provide a easy means of evacuating the crew in case they should have to abandon ship and return quickly to Earth. Well, if you look at that, that is coolant, which is leaking out at a prodigious rate. The, this went on for hours and hours and hours until all the coolant uh, in that particular what they call a loop 
which is basically plumbing, uh, leaked out into space, into the vacuum. Um, and now, of course, that coolant is no longer available in the spacecraft to do what it's supposed to do, which is to cool things. So for the last several days, there has been a uh, fevered background discussion between the U.S. and the uh, Russians as to whether that spacecraft, the one you see there, with the solar panels slightly overexposed. So in the video, you can see the snowstorm of coolant freezing in the vacuum as it escapes from the uh, coolant loops, um, whether they can use that to safely return home. Because without coolant, you know, the, remember, the biggest thing in space is not things getting cold. The whole Apollo 13 soap opera is very, very atypical because normally the problem in space is to get rid of heat, given that you can't do it by convection or conduction. There's only one way to get rid of excess heat in space, and that is by radiation and Planck's laws. So you need to have a good air conditioning system, which means you need a, a, a mechanism with pumps and electricity and power to move coolant through parts of a spacecraft that you need to cool. Then you need to run that coolant through a radiator, which basically is a big flat plate. It may have corrugations, but it's basically a big area that then uh, dumps that excess heat as infrared radiation into the background of the very, 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 very cold of uh, 2.7 degrees Kelvin of dark black space. Without those two components, a fluid to move the heat from where you don't want it to the radiator, and the radiator to get rid of it, in space things tend to heat up as opposed to cool down. So, without coolant, the astronauts could basically when they're undergoing, you know, a reentry, which heats the heat shield to several thousand degrees, and they're in terms of specific attitudes to the sun that does not allow them to, like, hang out in the shade of anything. Um, and they have computers on board that are very sensitive to temperatures and do not want to be above a certain uh, uh, temperature, otherwise they don't function uh, reliably. All of that is is part of the calculation going on behind the scenes as to whether that Soyuz spacecraft, which I think is number 22 in the lineup, which brought up uh, Russians and Americans several months ago, whether that spacecraft still docked to the International Space Station could be used in an emergency to evacuate the crew as a space taxi and take them home. It might take them home, but it may not take them home in very good condition, or it may take them home and then the computers, because they're overheating, will fail. And the, in other words, you can see there's all kinds of downside scenarios to not having a fully functioning spacecraft. So, so far, the Russians and the Americans, NASA and Roscosmos, have not said anything about the analysis. All they've said is they're looking at alternatives, like sending up the next Soyuz uh, from the assembly line, number 23. But now we see there from that headline and that story, which if you click on it, there's a whole back story on this. Um, they, the, the, the next scheduled flight of the Soyuz 23 was going to be March. They seem to be able to move that up like about a month, but not that's not really significant given that this is still 
the latter part of December. So you've got all of January and then you've got a lot of February. And so tonight, the crew literally do not have a means of escaping the International Space Station if they should need to and of getting safely home. Now, this is a situation which has never, ever occurred in the history of the International Space Station, going all the way back to when it was first put in place. The first uh, segment was lofted into orbit in, I believe, November of 1998. What does this mean? Well, because the space station is made of compartmented segments and each one has a, you know, a, a door, a lock, uh, it means if there was something that would happen, like another meteor would slice through one segment of the space station, they could simply seal it off. They have a storm cellar for radiation. They've got plenty of food and water and all that on board. They could last for six to eight months if there was no other visits. So it's not that they're in immediate danger. It's just that in a worst case scenario, abandoned ship, they could not tonight on the station abandon ship because that taxi that you see spewing coolant is not a reliable means of transportation. So stay tuned. Now, you know, I said last week uh, in somewhat strong terms that I find this all extraordinarily coincidental. And I'm really wondering if someone is kind of uh, turning up the metaphorical heat. And this was and is a warning to NASA. Do not release the extraordinary high resolution, extraordinary high color of the real Artemis imagery of the moon and what's on the far side and it's on the near side. In fact, all over the moon, this extraordinary ancient glass layered dome, because if you do, um, that's a nice space station you got there. Be a shame if something happened to it or the crew. Now, can I prove that? No, of course not. But given that we are so far down the road of extraordinary, never before seen or experienced politics at every level of our society and our technological civilization and our political discourse and uh, operations. Um, given how much in history has been expended to keep what is on the moon and what's really in the solar system secret, and you know my, my thinking that this is the prime reason why John Fitzgerald Kennedy was killed. And Robert and I are going to go through that tonight. And I haven't compared notes with him lately. I don't know whether he agrees with me or not. I think the evidence that I've assembled independently uh, warrants that conclusion that this was the ultimate sin when against the will of the Nazis that took over NASA in Operation Paperclip after World War II, the President of the United States was in essence turning around and was proposing to give um, what was on the moon jointly to the Soviet Union, to the Russians, who of course were the bitter enemies of Nazi Germany in World War II. Um, I think that was a bridge too far. And again, we're going to spend a lot of the evening talking about why John Kennedy was killed, not just how, 
but why? And that will lead us, loop us back from 1963 to 2022 or 2023, which will be exactly 60 tetrahedral years since Kennedy was murdered. And given that these people can't go and do anything without a ritual. It's just possible that our conversation tonight is kind of like the penultimate conversation we'll be having one year from now, when in 2023, on the 60th anniversary, maybe finally the full disclosure of what happened to John Kennedy and why will be revealed. That will be part of a very interesting discussion we're going to be having with Robert very shortly. Item number two. Apropos of this, we've all been waiting, biting our fingernails and calling all our sources and every day trying to figure out what's going on, what's going on. The President of the United States uh, yesterday finally signed the 2023 Defense Authorization Act. And there's all kinds of reasons why there was some discussion. Was he going to sign it? Was he going to, uh, you know, make a big deal out of some parts of it that he doesn't agree with? Uh, basically, the uh, the COVID uh, vaccination part, which the Republicans insisted be struck from the bill, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it turns out that despite all the downsides and some of the wording from the White House in the press release about the signing and the disagreements, the president did sign the bill, and of course, this audience is well aware that one of the key reasons is that contained in this authorization, there is startling language, now law, that allows insiders in the Pentagon, the security agencies, in the contractor pool, at NASA specifically, from my perspective, any of these people that have access to evidence of extraterrestrial activity or presence in the solar system are now allowed by law with zero repercussions to take it up the chain of command and make it public to the appropriate Pentagon office and the congressional committees which are in charge of the current UAP UFO investigations, up to and including, of course, this new panel, which NASA itself has formed to basically look seriously at the potential are, is the UAP UFO phenomenon in some aspect extraterrestrial itself. We know now, based on decades of our research, that there are ruins of ETs all over the solar system. Which is why maybe item number one, someone is outside the bounds now of the law, just reminding these NASA people, that's really a nice space station. Be a shame if something were to happen to it. We shall see as the new year progresses, as the new month progresses, as we move in one week into 2023, what in fact comes of this law, and if we suddenly have a lot of interesting new data on the table regarding what NASA knows about extraterrestrial life and extraterrestrial artifacts and ruins, including this extraordinary ancient glass dome all around the entire 
moon. Which brings me to item number three. Um, several months ago, as you know, uh, back in the summer, um, NASA launched the extraordinarily delayed and extraordinarily uh, expensive Webb Space Telescope. Ten billion dollars buys you, it turns out, a lot. Well, one of the prime targets that I've been focusing on is mentioned very carefully in item number three, because that is the story about the first look that Webb has now had of these seven extraordinary uh, exoplanets orbiting a star 39, twice 19.5, light years away from Earth, seven tetrahedral uh, hyperdimensional physics planets orbiting this red dwarf star. And they all seem, in our model, to have been moved there from somewhere else and assembled as a giant cosmic Disneyland of planets with diverse environments, diverse atmospheres, diverse living conditions, maybe diverse cultures, all in one system located not just 39 light years away, but located in such a way that when we look at the TRAPPIST-1 system, which is a technical name uh, named after the observatory that found them uh, several years ago, because they all cross the disk of the star around which they're orbiting. That's called an eclipse or an occultation. If you were on a planet in the TRAPPIST-1 solar system, 39 light years away, you would be able to look at the Earth's solar system at our sun and see our planets tracking across the, the visible disk of our star, which means we have two reciprocal solar systems that are linked optically because both systems with incredible low probability of this happening just by chance are aligned. And we can look at them and they can look at us and is there anybody home? Well, that item number three is the first blush of data from Webb's first look at the TRAPPIST-1 system and the atmospheres which swirl around those seven terrestrial-sized planets. Future work will allow them to look at much more uh, granular detail and what we're looking for, of course, are the signatures that scientists like uh, James Lovelock, who, who proposed the Gaia hypothesis for Earth, namely that life has remodeled Earth's atmosphere. So if you were a thousand light years away and could somehow look at the atmosphere of the Earth, you would know that there was somebody home because the atmosphere is basically a life bearing atmosphere with tons of free oxygen and all kinds of other molecules that only life can create. Well, the TRAPPIST observations by Webb in future months and years are going to try to do the same thing in reverse. NASA is going to try, the Webb telescope is going to try, the principal investigators are going to try to examine those planets as they trip across their background star and look at the spectral changes in the planetary atmospheres as each one crosses the stellar disk of the star that they all orbit. Seven Earth-like planets within a space smaller than the distance from our Sun to Mercury. 
This, to me, looks like an extraordinarily engineered system. Back to Arthur C. Clarke, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, and the same kind of technology that can move planets around and create an artificial Disney park of seven habitable worlds um, could also, of course, put a glass dome around the moon. Which brings us to number four. Um, when I look back at the Artemis database and I looked at the connection uh, to the Alan Bean gallery, remember Alan Bean is the uh, lunar module pilot uh, who on Apollo 12 navigated the uh, lunar lander to and from the moon when Pete Conrad, who was the commander, was in the left-hand seat or left-hand uh, berth uh, driving the ship. It was uh, uh, Bean was doing the navigating and calling out the readouts and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, Bean, when he came back, he quit NASA in the 1990s and became, 1980s actually, and became a full-time fine artist and henceforth painted, as I've said over and over again, his experiences and those of the other astronauts upon the moon until he died, which was in uh, May of 2018. His work in the 90s took an extraordinary transition from the moon looking kind of like the NASA photos, dull and gray and lifeless and dead, to taking on what he actually calls in one of his paintings in his gallery, a Monet-like moon. And so what I've done is I put a comparison of one of Bean's representations of the moon uh, together with uh, the actual Artemis moon that's a uh, frame grab from one of the uh, GoPro video uh, videos that were shot uh, in the, about the same geometry as the spacecraft was rounding the moon and coming home to splash down uh, on Earth a few days later. And the coincidence of colors and what Bean says about that painting, the one on the left, you'll find in gallery number two. Just look for that moon, that uh, gibbous moon with Earth light on the right and sunlight on the left, which was the phasing of the moon when the uh, Apollo 12 expedition was coming home. They were about an hour out from the moon, leaving the moon's sphere of influence, heading to Splashdown on the Earth three days later. And he has a whole rap in this caption as to why he kept tossing aside and putting away his earlier representations of what the moon looked like to him. And uh, we won't go into it tonight, but in fact, he makes this comment toward the end of that long, long explanation in gallery number two that uh, for this painting, for that he basically finally decided and got around to painting the real moon. And that can conveys a multitude of meaning if you have been following any of our uh, programs over the last several months or at least weeks. And if you listen to the show we did last Sunday, we will replay on Christmas night tomorrow night. All of which brings us now to Robert Morningstar. Uh, Robert is a really interesting guy. Um, he is a self-proclaimed civilian intelligence analyst. He's definitely an investigative journalist, and he also is a psychotherapist. 
currently living in New York City. He's a specialist in photo interpretation, geometric analysis, and computer imaging. He graduated many years ago from the Power Memorial Academy and was a New York State Region Scholar at Fordham University, where he received a degree in psychology. While at Fordham in 69, which of course was the year that we put human footsteps back on the moon in the modern era, Robert participated as a research fellow in a U.S. Naval-sponsored program to develop artificial intelligence. And there's a whole bunch more in his bio, which you can read on the other side of midnight. Um, I want to focus tonight on Robert's extraordinary, individual, unique, and salutary research into A, why was Kennedy killed? And B, how was it accomplished? And as with all good forensic stories and investigations, it is not a simple matter of A follows or precedes B, precedes C, etc., etc. It actually gets very, very, very complicated. And so what we'll do is we'll introduce Robert at the end of this half hour, and we'll pick up the story from the beginning, beginning, at the beginning of the next segment. So, Robert Morningstar, welcome to Christmas Eve on the other side of midnight. Thank you, Richard. And I want to wish a very Merry Christmas to all our friends, to Keith, Kanthea, Ron, and on behalf of my friend Jill, who's also my associate producer. I don't think I would be here um, without her help and that of many others. Uh, and you all know who you are. And thank you for supporting uh, the Morning Star Report and the, the other side of midnight and the other side of the news. So thank you all. You're all dear friends, and I'm happy to be here. I wish you all a Merry Christmas. Do you remember where you were, like I do, with incredible crystal clarity when John Kennedy was killed? Absolutely. I can even tell you the sentence that had just come out of my biology teacher's mouth. He had just said, gentlemen, alcohol is a depressant. Because we were studying biology and we were studying... Uh, the effects of drugs, alcohol, and uh, other medications. And he had just said that, gentlemen, alcohol is a depressant. And the speaker, loudspeaker in the room crackled. And I heard a man say, a man and a woman were seen running from the triple overpass. And then it crackled again. And we were like, what the hell is going on? And then the principal, Brother Lawrence Kelly. Irish Christian brothers, God bless them all. Uh, he was the principal and he came on and he said, uh, gentlemen, there were no ladies in my school. Gentlemen, uh, the president of the United States has just been shot in Dallas and we're going to turn on the news and I ask you to stand and say a prayer for his safety. So they put this over the intercom, that's what you were listening to. Exactly, yes, exactly. And then we were, we arose and we said a prayer uh, in unison, hoping for his survival. And then we were dismissed. So as you know, in New York, it was 1.30 in the afternoon. So we were dismissed about a quarter to two. And on the way downstairs, uh, it was a seven-story building, and five of the first five stories were for classrooms. We were going downstairs. And I remember, and this is ironic. This is very ironic. There was a, a student named Vincent Tote. 
and he was a classmate of mine, but we weren't in the same class. But he opened the door on one of the floors as I was going down, and with a very, very forlorn look on his face, he just said, the president is dead. And that was an utter shock. And I just continued down the stairs, caught the bus going home. It was a beautiful, beautiful spring-like day in, in New York City that day. I will never forget it. And that's how it began. But it actually began for me about, oh, five years earlier. For me, uh, I'll say... Okay, I'll, I'll tell you what. We're at the bottom of the hour. That's the perfect place to stop. Okay, very good. I remember vividly where I was with just as much as verisimilitude. But I couldn't walk home. I had to take a bus. And that was the longest bus ride with a whole bunch of total strangers crying that I've ever taken. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. My guest tonight, Robert Morningstar, the story of his research into why John Kennedy was killed and how he really died. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this uh, Christmas Eve 2022. It, it may seem as a kind of a bizarre program to do for Christmas Eve, but I wanted to do this tonight because without John Fitzgerald Kennedy, we would not now know what is waiting as the most extraordinary Christmas present of all on the moon and in the rest of the solar system. Things that will change life for the better will catapult humanity back to what it was supposed to become a long, long time ago, which will make humans act toward humans as humans once again. So many implications that we've, we've never really covered. We've got to do a show where we lay all this out. But without John Kennedy and the unique thing that John Kennedy did 
as the hallmark memento of his brief administration. Why would anyone care who killed John Kennedy tonight? The two are inseparably, at least in my mind, connected. Anyway, Robert, please continue. Well, I was saying that um, quite literally my infatuation with John F. Kennedy began in 1958 when I first saw him on television on a, um, a press conference. might have been Meet the Press. And uh, then there were uh, other television. I started to follow him, basically. I never followed a politician, you know. I can remember in 1956 in that election, I didn't like either candidate because both of them were bald. <laughs> Those are the prejudices, the prejudices of an eight to ten year old boy. Adley Stevenson and Eisenhower were both bald, so like, yeah, I don't know. I want a president with hair. So I started watching John Kennedy because he struck me, first of all, the way he sat in a chair, and then the way he spoke. And then, of course, his looks. And of course, I was, uh, another, you know, that was the age of heroes, the 1950s, growing up with heroes. And Flash Gordon was one of my heroes. And when I saw John Kennedy and started to listen to him speak, and later on when he introduced the idea of the, the new frontier and the space age, I thought, this guy this guy has that charisma, the same charisma that Flash Gordon had. But uh, he had that unusual way of speaking, <clears throat> which is not a Massachusetts accent. <clears throat> the only person who's told the truth about <clears throat> John Kennedy's accent is the great uh, Irish-American writer, Mary McCrory, who picked up on the same thing I did. And she said, oh, that phony Kennedy accent there, that imitating the English accent because they wanted to be uh, high society. So everybody says it's a Massachusetts accent, but actually Joe Kennedy took his sons to England to be Anglified, to rise in society in American society, but the other part of it well, is wait, that, well, wasn't wasn't John uh, the you know senior the father actually the ambassador to the court of St James for a while? That's what I'm saying. He he took the whole family there, and uh, he educated them in English manners and diplomacy. Do you know that John F. Kennedy was doing errands like 007 errands for his father when his father was ambassador? He did spying uh, trips into Nazi Germany, but he also uh, did um, mercy work. There was a, a ship that was torpedoed and sunk, and survivors wound up in Ireland, and John Kennedy was sent by his father. He was about 17 or 18 years old. He was sent as his father's emissary to, uh, to give them uh, rescue and uh, provide facilities, uh, lodging, and then shipping the survivors back to the United States. He had run-ins with the Hitler Youth in, uh, in his trips to Germany, and he saw what Nazism was from the get-go. So he, his father, his family, on top of having lost his brother, Joe Kennedy, in a terrible uh, Air Force uh, disaster, uh, they hated the Nazis, you know, and they tried to warn, Joe Kennedy tried to warn Eisenhower very early on about the villains in what we're going to talk about today. And that is uh, specifically Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles, who took over. They were the Nazis that took over 
the Central Intelligence Agency and the State Department, and from there the tentacles went on. Alan Dulles actually helped a lot of the paperclip Nazis come to the United States. So Joe, Joe Kennedy Sr., who hated the Nazis because of the loss of his senior, his oldest son, Joe Jr., who was supposed to be the president. John took up the mantle after Joe was killed. But um, Joe Sr. approached Eisenhower and he said to him, listen, don't, don't take on the Dulles brothers. Don't take on John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles. They are Nazis. I exposed them in 1940. They raised Hitler to power. They were working for the Union Bank as attorneys, and they were arrested in 1940s for breaking the Trading with the Enemies Act, which goes back to World War One. Once the war was declared in Europe, um, Germany was technically the enemy. And no American companies were supposed to do any business with them. But Union Bank of New York, headed by Prescott Bush and um, assisted by the Dulles brothers, kept funneling money into Germany to help sustain uh, Hitler. So Joe warned him. He said, if you take these guys on, they're going to betray you. They're going to stab you in the back. They're going to take over operations and they're going to start operating as independence. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. Do we have any reference for that? In other words, is that part of a public record somewhere? It is in Joe Kennedy's biography, which is very, very hard to get. It's called The Fruitful Bow. Hmm. It's a limited edition book that he wrote uh, as as, uh, his memoirs and that's where he cites that uh, admonition that he gave Eisenhower. And Eisenhower didn't listen. And by 1956, uh, I think the writing was on the wall. By then, the tentacles of the Fourth Reich had spread into almost every um, department as far as... Well, we made Na- this Faustian bargain with the paperclip crowd, the Nazis, for, yes. in, in terms of NASA and rocketry and engineering, because, of course, of the threat of, of Stalin and the Soviet Union and thermonuclear war and the need for deterrent and ICBMs and all of that. So it was like it all came, you know, part and parcel with importing a whole bunch and far more than just a couple 300. I mean, there were thousands of Nazis that spread throughout the government as well as private industry. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, there was a third sibling of the Dulles family, and it was a woman. Her name was Eleanor Dulles. And of all people to choose to be in charge of the Marshall Plan and the dissemination of the Marshall Plan funds, Eleanor Dulles became the director of the Marshall Plan in post-war Europe. And when she retired in 1951, she was known as the Queen of Berlin for having helped Berlin survive. Here's another little interesting fact. We all know about the Berlin airlift and the great compassion and rescuing of the Germans against the blocks, the Soviet bloc. The planes were flying in every day with tons of food and coal and clothing and fuel, but they weren't going home empty. 
they were going home with the paperclip Nazis that Dulles had, was helping, along with the Catholic Church, uh, helping a lot of Nazis. Well, wasn't it essentially the whole Galen rat line? Yes, Galen and, uh, let's not forget, uh, Werner. Because Galen and Werner had been brought together in 1943 with the amalgamation of rocket science and secret technology with the spy network. And that's told in Albert Spears' Inside the Third Reich. That's where I picked up on the name of the CIA, where it came from, why it's called Central. It comes from the term middle work. That's the, mm. the name they gave the amalgamation of rocket science and spying and espionage and uh, national security in 1943. So I always ask people, why do you think we're not? They don't call it the United States Space Agency or the United States Intelligence Agency, because the Germans refused to work for any organization that had the word United States in it. So that's uh, another aside. So Joe tried to warn him, and when he saw that uh, that uh, Nixon was going to be the next president. Uh, Joe had uh, John took up the mantle and had to defeat him because uh, he was Nixon was hand in glove with with that uh, that group that power group let's call it that so Joe uh, you know Joe always wanted to have uh, one of his sons become president of the United States and he actually sacrificed three Joe died in the war John and Robert were killed when they ran for president and uh, it's my hope that they did not die in vain. You know, you use the term Faustian, a Faustian bargain. Mm. And uh, you know what? Honestly, I hope it turns out to be Faustian because what people don't know is that in the end, Faust redeemed his soul. In every rendering of the story of Faust that we have seen come out of Hollywood for the last 50 years, the devil always wins. But in the real telling of the Faust story, particularly in the German version from the 1920s, Faust redeems himself at the end through love. There's a very famous movie, well, maybe not that famous, it's famous to me, mm -hmm. um, set in New England called The Devil and Daniel Webster from the 1940s. Oh, yes. And in it, the Webster defends the victim that Satan is about to make the bargain with and he legally gets him clear. Mm -hmm. Actually, the guy had made the bargain with the devil, yes. and then yes. he was uh, on trial for his soul. Yep. There are very, there's a lot of good, uh, it's a very good theme, but let us say, let me say clearly, Goethe's Faust, Faust redeems himself through love, and the archangel Michael manifests. At the end of the movie, the, the German silent film, Mephistopheles comes to claim his soul. And Michael the Archangel grabs him by the neck. He said, no, you lost. You lost because love conquers all. It's a, a very beautiful telling of the story. You know, I wondered uh, for decades now why it was that Grumman, uh, in the form of a guy, a senior executive of the Grumman Aircraft Corporation, one afternoon at CBS came over to me and he said, uh, uh, Dick, he said, uh, I'd like you to do the section of the lunar module press book uh, on the moon, why we're going, what's there, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder it was because I was such a pest around CBS telling everybody who would listen, producers and Cronkite and, 
you know, enemies and friends alike, why John Kennedy's singular mission to go to the moon was the most important thing, not only that his administration had ever done, but any administration had ever done. And believe me, I was a lone voice in the wilderness. They all looked at it as simply a crass political move having to do with the Cold War, nothing bigger, nothing more. And I knew nothing about what was on the moon and what's in the solar system at that point. I was a babe in the woods. And I just wonder if, if my allegiance to Kennedy's vision, because, of course, he was building on things he knew that he couldn't tell anybody about because nobody would have believed them. And they came from the early machinations in Project Corona of the yes. CIA. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, which was also a DOD uh, project. And yeah, well, it became a joint thing with the Air Force because the Air Force yeah. had the rockets. The CIA yeah. had the, the smarts, the brains, but the Air Force had to be the ones to carry it out if they could. Yeah. Yes. Now, do you know that there was a lunar counterpart to Corona that was proposed in the beginning, right after um, um, uh, Sputnik? And I can't find any trail. It all ends. It begins and ends at JPL. But I have a feeling that this was how John Kennedy knew we had to go to the moon. And then ultimately, he knew we had to go together as humanity. And that's why they killed him. And the secret project, and I can't find, if anybody in the audience knows anything more, please reach me. I'm well, you know, available on the web. The project, Robert, was called Project Red Sox. And why do you I've, suppose? I've never heard of that one. Uh, exactly. It was a I secret. I have heard about the Army project to build a, a lunar base. Yeah, this was this was General Trudeau and uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, Paula's friend, um, Colonel Corso. Colonel Corso. Yes. No, this was a secret JPL proposed unmanned robot to basically, like Corona, send film into space. But instead of doing it in Earth orbit, it was going to send the spacecraft carrying film, a film camera, not not television, not telemetering and all that, in a looping trajectory around the far side of the moon, take a huge number of incredible images, return the capsule to Earth, enter and develop the film on Earth, just like Corona. And the project was called Project Red Sox. Now... A few days ago, I had a sudden incredible brainstorm. I said to myself, if this was Kennedy's back door to finding out what the CIA originally had intuited was on the moon through Corona, would that be the answer to the mysterious name? So, of course, you can Google anything and guess who was the number one fan of the baseball team, the Boston Red Sox. John F. Kennedy. John Fitzgerald Kennedy. That's what I was going to say. He probably gave it the name. That's why he did it, because they were the underdogs. We were the underdogs, and this was, I'm telling you, there's a whole chapter of history out there, or more than one, about Project Red Sox, because I think that he quietly enacted it, and that's how he knew he had to share this information as to what's really on the moon with the whole of humanity, starting with our arch enemies, the Russians. And he convinced Khrushchev. 
who initially was totally, totally against the idea and then suddenly caved. And, you know, within weeks of Kennedy's death, they'd put Khrushchev under house arrest, got rid of him because he and Kennedy had this deal to make the human race whole. Yes, indeed. As I said on the show before, I remember when Khrushchev uh, was deposed because it happened during the seventh inning stretch of the seventh game of the 1964 World Series between the Yankees and the St. Louis Cardinals. Oh, my God! I remember that so vividly. Uh, seventh inning of the seventh game, which the Yankees lost, sadly. <laughs> See, I initially was, was, was an Eisenhower fan. I was deathly against Kennedy and Kennedy being elected and all that Mm -hmm. until he made the move on the moon and Apollo and that caused me to reassess because he was really a rabid you know anti-communist and you know almost like a like a visible McCarthy at some level and you know Mm -hmm. his his brother and uh, you know, who became attorney general. In other words, I was not a fan of the Kennedy, you know, dynasty. Right. But then, as Apollo began to matriculate, mm-hmm. and I began to, well, I got deeply immersed in Apollo because of CVS, you know, being tapped on the shoulder. And then, of course, in, in years and years later, I realized, oh my God, this, of course, how he had to know what was there and why he was he took a 180 degree stance from having to win the race with the commies to sharing what was there and that of course was the thing the nazis could not abide because they wanted it all for themselves not even americans are supposed to know what's out there tonight right so we got about 10 minutes. So let's pick up your, your, your early years. We're looking at Kennedy as this interesting politician who was different. Yes. Yes. And uh, he had vitality. <clears throat> I mean, he's, he always used to talk about vim and vigor. <laughs> yes. And vim and vigor. The difference between vim and vigor, vigor is a physical energy and vim is a mental energy. You're having enthusiasm for your, your projects and, uh, so I've always tried to maintain a high level of both vim and vigor in my work. But um, I kept following him. And then during the campaign, I, I tell people, look, there was no Internet in 1960. And the campaigns were mainly pamphlets and uh, mailings and brochures. And buttons. And, don't forget the buttons. And the buttons. Yes, yes. So I climbed the towers of the west side of Manhattan, 15, 12-story, 15-story buildings, level by level, floor by floor, door by door, dropping off pamphlets because the um, the local uh, Democratic uh, Election Committee opened an office right here on, on Amsterdam Avenue and 92nd Street, and they enlisted us uh, local kids to be pamphleteers. So I really worked really hard in that campaign. And John Kennedy actually appeared on uh, 91st Street. 91st Street and Broadway, he gave a speech uh, on Halloween night before that election. So I was very involved in the campaign. And, uh, of course, uh, I was thrilled that he won because we had a young president who had hair. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of hair. He was handsome. He was charming. To say nothing of Jackie. Uh, Jackie was beautiful, of course, but they they had 
they had class, and that was a good thing in those days, you know? Well, they transformed the White House. I mean, remember the CVS special where she did all the redecorating and then, then I saw that. Charles I saw Collingwood, that. you know, it was black and white television back then, but it radiated something different than any previous politician I'd casually looked at, certainly the so-called moribund years of, of Eisenhower. Yeah, I remember the, uh, well, you know, anytime a, a president gets elected, you, you get the comedians to come out, and there was a guy named Vaughn Meter. Vaughn Meter. Vaughn Meter used to come out and speak like John F. Kennedy, and he'd talk about uh, the toys in the bathtub and, uh, you know, the the little rubby du- rubber ducky is mine, the other toys of Car- Carolyn's. And then there was a... a did, 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 you get the, uh, did you get the LP record, Vaughn Meter? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I but the one that got me was somebody was uh, satirizing Jackie Kennedy, uh, leading the tour through the White House and leading the, uh, the reporter and saying, well, this is the Lincoln bedroom where President Lincoln slept. Then let's go on. Oh, and this is the blue room where President Blue slept. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the mockery was was Uh, incredible. Not to mention Jose. Do you remember who the correspondent was on that special with Jackie Noidos? I think you just said Charles Collingwood. Charles Collingwood. Now, why is that name an important name you should remember? Oh, I don't know. I just remember Charles Collingwood did the stunning CBS special on Stonehenge. Oh, I saw that one, too. And and you know what? That one struck me. Oh, yeah. First time that they made. I was so lucky when CBS picked up the phone because anybody I mean, I actually work for all three of the networks, but I love CBS, the Columbia broadcasting system, heavy, heavy ritual symbology there. Because yeah. it was, it was. I mean, Severide, you know, even in his cup, when he was sitting at the bar, I remember one night we're going on and I'm trying to impress upon him, you know, the, the central feature of Heinlein's The Man uh, Who Sold the Moon. And Severide, I mean, I got to talk to all these guys. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the Stonehenge uh, uh documentary was fantastic uh, eye-opener for me made me dream of going to Stonehenge and ultimately in the 1990s my dream came true through the 90s and the 2000s I was I had the privilege of being at Stonehenge seven times on the summer solstice and to see the sunrise over the heelstone in addition to other uh, privileges that I received there that um Initiated me actually quite literally into the Arthurian mm. legacy. I was a I was chosen to draw the sword from the stone at Stonehenge, in a ceremony conducted by the ancient Druid order of the Universal Bond, and that was in 1997. And the reason I was honored was for all the work that I'd done up to that time on the JFK assassination. And uh, well, John F. Kennedy unbeknownst to many people, really had a a deep connection to the Druid Order. He was a very good friend of Winston Churchill. Churchill kind of took him under his wing and introduced him around. And, um, you know, Kennedy, being a descendant of the old high kings of Ireland, is steeped in in Celtic uh, tradition. 
And so mm, I'm following that tradition. Well, you know, there's a whole E.T. aspect to the Tawatha, the Danon, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, so, absolutely. And, and one wonders whether that family... See, what really struck me that there, there were like the Kennedys were living two separate lives and almost never the twain shall meet, except it met in Apollo under, under John. His mm-hmm. father, Joe, when he was appointed ambassador to England, you know where he spent most of his time? At the British no, Museum. Oh, the British Museum. It's the British. What was he doing in the British Museum? Literally months. Months, not at the residence, not at the in, at the embassy, but at the museum. He was looking into ancient history, Absolutely. and obviously, I've, John was was part of those conversations. Oh, absolutely, had to be. So let's uh, let's go back to the um, the history there. Yeah, we got so, about two minutes until the top of the hour. So okay. So anyway, I worked very hard for the election of John F. Kennedy. I was very happy with his election and where it seemed that he was taking the country. Uh, Look, all you have to know about what John F. Kennedy did to the country was look at the crowd that greeted him in Dallas the day he arrived. Millions of people were there. And it's ironic that the last words um, he heard before his death was uh, Nellie Connolly turning to him and telling him, Mr. President, you can't say that Dallas doesn't love you. Hmm. And shots rang out. So this killing of President Kennedy was was a betrayal, not only of the United States, but it was a betrayal of the state of Texas. They they took the fall. They chose Dallas, and the poor people of Dallas had to suffer the stigma for years and years and years of bigotry against Texas and against Dallas. Well, you can't say that the, that the Dallas people. Police Department was an exemplar of, of, you know, Boy Scout, you know, whatever. Except that the Nazis and the, and the mafia had infiltrated it, and that's where we get into the relationship Jack Ruby and J.T. Tippett, which we'll talk upon uh, later. But after, after the break, I would really like to go and reveal to uh, people how I had a visit from the Ghost of Christmas Past and... It's uh, a turning point in my life, an integral to this whole saga. Okay, well, hold it there, because we are at the uh, top of the hour. My guest this morning, my sole guest, unless we have surprises in the third hour. And at Christmas, you never know. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're going through why 60, technically it's 59 years, but... You know, it's in the window now, 60 tetrahedral years. Am I crazy or am I thinking that on the ritual on the 60th year, which is literally one year from now, there are going to be some astonishing, stunning revelations in the whole Kennedy saga? And who knows, a year from tonight, where we're going to be in terms of what's really on the moon. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>